0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And I see uh, there's a question in the chat, and I'll go through, Um, I think we'll address that in part, but feel free to send questions to the center. Uh, for the Sunday morning and I'll try to integrate your questions into the discussion as we're sort of in the last phase of studying the Buddha's teachings on Anapanasati, the mindfulness of breathing in and out, this very sophisticated and complete and also still simple instruction that the Buddha gave, probably the most complete and uh, yeah, useful meditation instruction the Buddha gave that was recorded and passed along through all these generations. And we'll be moving to the fourth set of instructions. So, most of you have heard this. There are 16 instructions, depending on how you interpret the first uh, set. Um, and each sort of general category, we, we often divide it into four tetrads. The first having to do with mindfulness of the body. The second set of four having to do with mindfulness of mental activity. The third set of four really having to do with mindfulness of the nature of the mind, the nature of the present moment. And then the fourth is, what do I need to keep in mind to support the letting go of awakening? So having really open from the gross to the most subtle aspect of our being, body, activity of the mind, space of the mind, having learned what there is to learn in being intimate, being present with the body, activity of mind, and the mind, now what what have I learned I need to keep in mind so that when I'm keeping in mind, the heart lets go. And what is the heart letting go of? It's letting go of its dependence on sense experience, its fixation. And the way we fixate on our experiences is through those avenues of greed and aversion and delusion or distraction or having a fixed view about our sense experience. So now this we should have a lot of humility about. What is the mind that's not doing that? isn't relating to sense experience in a dependent way, through greed, through uh, hatred or aversion, through distractedness. So this mind, this knowing mind, that isn't oriented towards sense experience in that dependent way, well, you know, we have the reports back and some of us have little experiences or bigger experiences life-changing experiences right so we have some intuition about the kind of space of freedom that arises and the interesting thing is it's not so much that we want to disappear into this space but understanding the mind let's just say the heart or mind that lets go it actually in a way it's the most functional thing in the world because it tells us how to be in the world of experience. Having learned how to be not attached, not grasping experience, all of a sudden we kn- we know better how to be in this world where there are sense experiences and uh, there are thoughts and there are opinions in my mind. So it's really important that we don't interpret the Buddhist teachings as this um, escape, like how do I get the hell out of here, because life is really hard, and I want an exit ramp. And You know, a lot of religious traditions, they talk about getting to heaven, someplace where we won't be bothered by the messiness of complexity of life, and uh, so it's really important. And I thought this would be a nice theme for those who can stay for the small groups, and I think Shannon is here to lead the groups today, Uh, set those in motion at the end. But whether you can stay for the small groups or not, what might be really good homework for all of us um, is to really, as we get a sense of the path that the Buddha points to, which is, like I mentioned with the contemplation on the three refuges, Buddha, this capacity we have to be open and interested and bright, alert, to what? To Dhamma, the way it is. So, those are our first two refuges. Being awake, Buddha, to the way that it is, this moment, the arising experience in this moment, being intimate. So, really, Buddha and Dhamma just means deeply valuing being intimate, being present with the way it is. Because there's no awakening, and there's no possibility to be a, a really functional, alive, engaged human being without valuing Buddha. And now, you don't have to call it Buddha and Dhamma, but there isn't another way. This is the Buddha's opinion, and I certainly align with that, like, hard to imagine, like, what would the alternative be, you know, like, to be a good human being by not being awake to the way it is, <laughs> you know, how would that work? Probably not very well. I mean, we have all sorts of examples of, in our own lives, of times, moments, maybe yesterday, maybe this morning, you know. Of not being clearly aware, not being interested, right, to connect with the way it is. Rather, put our head in the sand or turn away, get absorbed in something that, you know, just as some distraction, whatever it might be. So, I thought for the small groups and just generally, what is the difference between just being averse to the world? to the complexity of the world, averse to our suffering, averse to the suffering of others, wanting it to be done, wanting it to be over, but from a place of aversion. And what we talk about a lot in the Buddhist tradition of dispassion, or which is onward leading to letting go. Because remember, I just said that when we get to this fourth, which I'm going to introduce in more depth today, this fourth set of four instructions, right? So that's instruction, what would that be? Um, 16, 15, 14, 13. Okay, so 13 through 16. Um, it's really about answering that question what do I need to keep in mind that allows the heart to let go? And so the fruit of the Buddhist path, you know, we know the word nirvana or nibbana in Pali. Nirvana in Sanskrit language. So what is Nibbana? Well the word means the the letting go, the giving up of craving, or you could say the giving up, the once and for all full like full awakening is the once and for all full and complete, no latent tendencies remaining of that giving up of the mind thinking that sense experience should be clunked to that any sense experience pleasant or unpleasant should be clunked to so we could be in our deathbed dying and a wave of nausea comes up or some kind of pain comes up and the mind wouldn't think right like an awakened being someone who's done all the work there is to do they wouldn't think i need to get attached to wanting this pain to go away doesn't mean they like the wave of pain that's showing up in their life but they're not gonna there's no habit left to resist what is already true in the moment it's just not there because it's the work the spiritual work of uprooting that tendency has been done so when we think about nibbana as a letting go of the mind wrongly thinking that the heart has to resist experience that comes and goes has to have a fixed idea so we sometimes we think about this in terms of the three floods the asawas influxes outflows it's defined in different ways but the the three or four floods that has to do with the flood of like always thinking i should cling to sense experience that I like. So getting pushed around by our likes and our dislikes. And then the second flood is the flood of becoming. Always getting swept away, like I want to be the person that is this way, or I don't want to be the person that way, right? And the third flood is using fixed views, like that movement in our heart, like taking refuge in a fixed idea, which almost always involves selfing. You know, all my fixed ideas star a sense of a me or a mine, an I, me, or my, right? And we fix on it. So these are the three floods towards, like basically taking refuge in a sense experience that's going to save my day, or becoming somebody I want to become that will save my day, or an idea, an opinion that I'm going to fixate on, I'm going to hold tight to, that's gonna save my day, save my butt. So these are the three floods and this is really what we're letting go of. And all three of these floods have to do with this dependence on experience. Not just what we see and what we touch and what we smell and what we taste and what we hear, but also all of our mental constructions about sensuality, about me, you know, like becoming somebody, that's sensuality, even though it's just my own thoughts about Mark who gets his act together and starts to exercise and eats well and, you know, lives to be 120 and passes away quietly in asleep, sleep, you know, with all the clarity, no, passes away sitting in full lotus in deep samadhi. <laughs> <laughs> right, We set these, like, oh, I want to become that, you know, the perfect person who knows how to die and knows how to live and knows how to laugh and is totally woke in all the right ways, politically correct, and, and uh, does everything just right. And we have these, you know, and we can suffer just like desiring something for lunch is actually not so different than craving to become somebody, you know, who doesn't need lunch <laughs> or something like that or fixating on an opinion, you know. Whatever it might be, we're looking for refuge in what can't provide any lasting refuge. And these are the floods, and this is what the heart gives up. Now, the the question is, because this is really what that last set of four instructions are all about, were um, and the word changes here. Instead of what the Buddha often is using, like breathing in, one experiences, he really he uses the word one contemplates or one observes. So we're keeping something in mind: impermanence, dispassion, cessation, letting go. Those are the last four instructions. So same sort of setup. You know, while breathing in. One contemplates impermanence. While breathing out, one contemplates impermanence. Then the next, one breathes in, one contemplates dispassion. One breathes out, one contemplates dispassion. Then cessation. Then letting go. And this is the basic formula. It's used in slightly different ways. And the centuries after the time of the Buddha, they, they kind of elaborated in these very simple, um process but remember what the is describing in this last set of instructions isn't so much of me or you as a person and what my assignment is oh i got to do this and i'm going to do that and then I'm... he's really describing a natural process as if someone were to describe water falling from the clouds on the side of a mountain and flowing down and ending up in the streams and lakes and eventually in the ocean or someone were to describe how winter naturally uh, progresses into spring and summer or summer progresses into fall and winter so when when the mind when the heart keeps what in mind then there's going to be a natural process like if i Keep in mind my likes and dislikes, then what keeps naturally unfolding is what we call in Buddhism samsara cycles of stress and suffering. Because I'm paying attention to my likes and dislikes. So as I move through my day, I notice what I like and I like it and I want it and I want to have it and I want more of it. And I notice what I don't like the dust or the dirt or the thing that didn't get done and I want that to go away, and when I, this is kind of normal human activity, to be fixated because of habit on our likes and dislikes, so we're mostly moving through our days and hours basically driven by that habit of only attending to the likes and dislikes, ignoring everything else, and when I see something I like it triggers greed, when I see something I don't like it triggers aversion, and on and on and on and on. And so, now the Buddha is saying, let's, as we move through life, but first we'll do it as a contemplation in meditation so we get good at it, let's keep in mind impermanence. And remember, impermanence is really just Buddhist code for the way it is. So it's not like, you know, we say, okay, impermanence, as if we're looking at something, you know, how can I notice impermanence? Well, everything we're experiencing is impermanent. It's always been impermanent. It will always be impermanent. Because what that means, like when we're using it in this Buddhist context, that word anicca, impermanence, just means the way it is. And the way experience is, is flow. Now remember, one of the problems here, and I wanted to bring this up, because it can be confusing. And this is the difference between what we might call subjective experience and what we call objective experience. And it's a bit of a twist, because normally we might, you know, from a scientific, Western scientific point of view, we might think subjective, not very good, because it's tainted with my particular views, my particular conditioned habits. Objective, from a scientific point of view, good, right? Because, you know, I'm, I'm. this is objective reality as opposed to subjective reality. But from our practice point of view, um, objective, what we normally consider to be objective, would be considered diluted. Because from our Buddhist point of view, we understand, and this is It's not specific to Buddhism, it's just specific to paying attention to the way it is. This experience each of us is having right now, it is subjective. Where is it happening? Whatever experience any of us are having right now, it's being known in our mind. And that's really, that's one of the definitions of the word subjective, is existing within the mind. I looked it up <laughs> right so that's what it means to be subjective we realize that this experience exists in the mind now that's not a choice experience is always going to exist in our mind my thought about what's happening out there in the so-called external world is a thought that exists in my mind that is being known in my mind so when we Like And this is really right from the start of our practice, when we talk about being mindful of the way it is, there is, you know, as wisdom deepens, there has to be that recognition it's being known here and now in the mind. We don't often say, oh, oh, hearing's being known, but we can always add on, in the mind. Seeing is being known in the mind, thinking is being known in the mind, touching is Even touching, I'm touching the table here, that hardness, that smoothness, that coolness that I'm experiencing is being known in the mind. And once we get that subjective experience is reality, there isn't an objective reality we know, you know. And whenever we talk about objective reality, those are thoughts being known in the mind. So once we get that this is a subjective experiencing going on, always has been, always will, then it's easier to recognize that one of the characteristics of subjective experience, and I prefer to add the ing, uh, subjective experiencing, is that it's always emotion, never stops. So we have a subjective experience, but When we look at that subjective experience of a sound being heard or a sight being seen or a thought being thought or a touch being known, it's a river. It's a changing, flowing, moving, happening. It isn't a thing. So that's that 13th instruction. Whether we're uh, back to our basic training ground of being aware of the in-breath or the out-breath, or any aspect from gross to subtle of our subjective experiencing, Buddha doesn't care at this point. He just wants us to contemplate the reality of impermanence as we're breathing in, as we're breathing out, as we're experiencing whatever we're experiencing, as we're experiencing whatever we're experiencing. Notice that it's characterized by flow, by movement, by change. It's a subjective flow of knowing. This is being known, this is being known, and it's never static, it's never a thing. And that's something that it just takes, you know, the mind getting interested in, you know, it's not even that subtle at this point, the truth of change that we're talking about. And it might be useful, even though we're running out of time, but just to take a little time to let's reflect like the habit of objectifying what can only be a subjective experience. So let's catch that and realize I don't have to pretend that my experience is objective. I can realize that it's being known here and now in the heart and the mind. And then just practice And, you know, you might as well use the breathing in and breathing out unless some other stronger experience comes into the forefront. Just notice that whatever, and you don't have to control it, but whatever the mind is knowing, practice seeing it as a movement, as a flow, not a static this. Okay, let's just do that for a minute or two. So start by just sensing the subjective nature of our experiencing being known here and now. And then the Buddhist instruction, breathing in, contemplating impermanence, breathing out, contemplating impermanence, keeping that in mind. Is there anything that is not a movement, anything in your experience that's not moving? Good. So the reason the Buddha you know, described this last four instructions as contemplating impermanence, contemplating dispassion, contemplating cessation, contemplating letting go or relinquishment, is he was mapping out something very natural. Not something you or I have to do, but something we can have confidence in. When we keep impermanence in mind, which is just the way it is, then notice naturally, unavoidably, the heart is more and more filled, the mind is more filled with dispassion. It's like nothing to grasp, nothing here for me to grasp, because the very nature of every idea Every sound, every taste, every touch is flow. Why would the mind bother to look for solid ground where I could own it or have it? Right? The mind gives up on that project. It's a natural arising when impermanence is seen thoroughly. And remember, you can change the word impermanence. You know, in some ways it's already gotten overused. So there are other synonyms like insubstantial, ephemeral, unreliable, ungovernable nature of experience. Not trustworthy, not worthy of grasping, right? So then it makes sense that dispassion would arise when we are aware of that then the heart starts clinging. Just like, you know, people who have had a lot of relationships, uh, romantic, intimate relationships, you know, or even one. But at some point we want to realize that it never was wise of me to expect that person or any person to make me happy. Right? Which is just a kind of a larger expression of grasping you know we have this idea of the person so first we a person is a flow changing moving uh, thing process and we make them into my partner and then you know as they're part of my ground that's going to make me happy well it doesn't work that way does it so we can this uh insight this liberating insight into dispassion is like how we see the unfolding of our spiritual life over not you know over a month or even over a year but over many years we see there is this liberating beautiful quality of dispassion that has arisen right so you might some of you have been around for a while who've raised kids You know, this is an image, uh, a teaching used in early Buddhism about using the trajectory of parenting as a a metaphor for awakening, like the very real attachment when the kids are young, you know, and all the neurotic fears, I mean appropriate and neurotic fears that are there caretaking the kids when they really need your uh, undivided attention a lot of the time. But then when the kids are older, you know, it's sort of like, if you're a wise parent, it's like, okay, at this point, they have rights to make their own mistakes, dig their own holes, I'll love them as best I can, but I don't really own it anymore, do I? You know, and there's just a lot more dispassion about what the kids are up to when they're 30 or 50 or whatever they might be. I mean, it would be a little weird to somehow... Um, and certainly suffering to somehow s- track and, and feel responsible for the ups and downs of their day or their lives. Not that we don't care, but there's just a sense of space, dispassion. Oh yeah, same with the world. And this is the interesting thing about engagement and activism and, and really showing up for injustice, it, it feels sometimes it can seem like oh we have to really be suffering in order to care enough to do something and uh, and this is the interesting thing to look at each of us in our own lives whether we're talking about our relationship to a pet our relationship to a partner our relationship to issues in the world where there's suffering and we really want to address it or you know hope for more justice and we really want to bring that in. Um, Can that really good, necessary work of life, duties and responsibilities, can it be done in the spirit of dispassion, or does it need attachment? And to not have an opinion, but to really look and see. So and you know we'll we'll spend maybe three or even four weeks on these four instructions. We'll keep doing you know the the first twelve, but then these last four four we'll emphasize in the weeks ahead. And it really is just the simplest view of the awakening process. The first twelve are really helping us to open the mind. To the possibility of non-grasping just so we have we're activating the intuition that non-grasping is a possibility because until that point all our mind knows is like when we're hurting is well i'm just not doing a good job at grasping the right thing so we just sort of move around in the same space of our likes and dislikes but we can like if i'm really suffering oh i realize I really liking, really wanting something to happen, and I'm suffering. So I'll switch, and I'll really want something else to happen. But we're still in the cycles of samsara until we've done enough spiritual practice, where we've activated our natural intuition. We've learned something about the possibility of non-grasping, non-attachment. It's not just an idea. There's some real intuition. Uh, some. In Buddhism, we sometimes say, or the Buddha said, the taste of freedom. Yeah, and it's the same, Rafi, as the word disenchantment. I see Rafi's uh, chat there. Yeah, so this disenchantment to dispassion to cessation. So the more we activate the reality of dispassion in our hearts, nothing worthy of grasping, then the heart naturally sheds... More and more selfing. And we have a deeper and deeper taste of the mind free of grasping for a moment, or the mind free of self centeredness, selfing for moments. And we're gaining confidence in that mind not being colored, not being affected by selfing, by self centeredness. Because we don't know that mind yet. We have to realize that mind free of selfing. And that's the whole process we're using. Now that we have some confidence, then the Buddha says, live your life and do your meditation, keeping the ephemeral, insubstantial nature of any phenomena that the mind is using, keeping that in mind, keeping the dispassion that naturally arises because of noticing the insubstantial nature, keep the dispassion of mind, be really attuned to moments where the mind can realize non-grasping, not selfing, no selfing, no self-centeredness, experience not being framed from a self-centered point of view. When that ceases, that's the third step there, cessation, moments of that selfing activity ceasing in the heart and mind. And that really sets in motion the more, um, the deeper uprooting and releasing of the heart. So, for the small groups again, uh, we'll break into small groups for those who can stay. Thanks for all the interesting chats that people put down. Um, but the, the question I thought might be useful is it's easy to misinterpret dispassion as an aversion to life so just to reflect together in your small groups of three or four people like when has dispassion felt really wholesome and when was there that shadow of like aversion get me the heck out of here this is too much i want out and just sort of looking at that difference and we'll keep talking about this in the weeks ahead And remember, even if you can't stay for the small groups, you can just have this conversation with another Dharma friend during the week or just contemplate it as you're taking a walk and as you're living your life and see what you can learn. And we'll bring it forward with our conversations. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs,